Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to Stage Door Johnny, the podcast about theatre and life, and life in the theatre. Now, have I got some lives in the theatre for you this week, specifically in the German Street Theatre, which if you don't know it, you should. It's a tiny, beautiful little jewel box of a theatre, sort of part Noel Coward's front room, part louche brothel in the heart of London's glittering West End. And it was there that I recorded my first ever live show. So exciting in front of real people. And it's our last episode of my summer season. And what a way to go out talking to one of our great theatrical collaborations of modern times. One of the best directors there is Nicholas Heitner, one of the greatest actors we have, Simon Russell Beale. They've done nine plays together. I thought it was eight. I'm afraid Wikipedia badly let me down. Um, I'd missed out uh, Major Barbara by George Bernard Shaw, which they did at the National Theatre together. So I thought it was only eight in 16 years, which is still some good going. But in fact, it's even more than that. It's nine. We sat down at German Street uh, in June of this year, 2023. And it was, oh, it was such an enormous treat. These two have had such a special connection together throughout these plays. Oh, and if you want to know what these plays are, let me run you through them really quickly. The Alchemist was their first one with Ben Johnson, also starring um, Nick Heitner's other great collaborator, Alex Jennings, and the wonderful Leslie Manville. Then it was on to Much Ado About Nothing, with Simon unforgettably jumping into a pool of water on stage. (laughs) as Benedict and Zoe Wanamaker was his Beatrice London Assurance by Dion Boussico, in which his uh, Sir Hartcourt courtly ruthlessly pursued Fiona Shaw's lady gay spanker. Um, Then it was Collaborators, a new play by John Hodge, in which Simon played Stalin with a very interesting West Country accent, which is sort of Brilliant and chilling. Uh, Time of Athens, which they did for the Cultural Olympiad when it was the actual Olympics in London in 2012. Scabrous Shakespeare satire on money markets and business and wealth. Um, Arms and the Man, which I totally forgot. Bark and Sons by Nina Rain, another new play in which um, Simon played uh, Johann Sebastian Bach. An unforgettable Ebenezer Scrooge in Nick's production of uh, Christmas Carol. And then finally, the most recent one, when Simon played the titular role in Ibsen's John Gabriel Borman. All right, that's them up to date. God, it's an extraordinary list. 
new plays, classics, everything. They've had such a special creative life together. And I've got to tell you, it really is something to sit between them. It's like you are sort of in a circuit board of this pure connection of brain and instinct that runs like a kind of invisible current from one of them to the other when they get going. It really is extraordinary. All right, let's get them going. Gentlemen of the stage door, Johnny Company, this is your beginner's call. Mr. Cake, Mr. Heitner, and Mr. Beale to the stage, please. This is your beginner's call for the top of the show and the end of season two. All right, enough of me. Did someone say yes? Well, listen, I need, I need you to know this is an intimate audience, but if we're going to get along, I don't, want any, I don't want any kind of back chat like that, all right? Thank you. My first guest is a uh, BAFTA award-winning, Olivier award-winning, Tony award-winning director uh, of the National Theatre during an extraordinary golden age in its history. He's now the artistic director of the fantastic Bridge Theatre. He is, of course, Nick Heitner. Did you go to to sleep out there waiting to come on? Sorry about that. And my second guest is the great Simon Russell Beale. Thank you. Thank you very much. So listen, I wanted to start off by asking you about our new sovereign. Oh. Two Knights of the Realm. Were you invited to the No. Oh, come on. No. You weren't called in to help with the blocking? No. And no reading. No reading. I don't think there were many actors there, were there? It's worth saying that we steal our blocking from them. If you ever do do pageantry um, on screen or on stage, they they know how to do it, and so we copy them. (laughs) Although I did once get into conversation, I'm not even going to bother to say how, with... um, the Duke of Edinburgh's Aquarius, who said to me, he said to me, you're the man that's King George man, aren't you? And I said, yes, I am. He said, how, how did you know about the pageantry? Because you see, when I got this job, I said to my predecessor, how do you, how do you know about when to bow, when to walk backwards, all that stuff? And they said, well, you rent the DVD of the man of King George and you watch it. <laughs> <laughs> and you watch it like a hawk. So he said, so, so uh, who, who, how did you know? Who told you? And I said, we made it up. <laughs> Which is only half true, but it is how every it is how pageantry That's is. Fantastic. Because in fact, when we did the play, somebody in the National Theatre Literary Department knew a royal aquary. So four or five of us were allowed to go to Buckingham Palace and get a tutorial on walking backwards and nodding and bowing and so forth, which we then exaggerated and and did all the stuff you do with. And in its turn, that's now fed back into the royal household as a kind of manual. So it's a I but I still didn't get invited. No, still... That seems very, very wrong. Yeah. Back to the Knights. You guys met in 1990? Is Wikipedia let me down again? <laughs> do you, do you vaguely... Well, I've got my story of how we met. Oh, good. Mm. I'd like to hear it. And I... Th- it was when you were doing King Lear with John Wood. Which was 1990. That, there you go. In Yeah. Yeah, and we didn't know each other at all. And I... My story is, is that the great John Wood was doing King Lear, and they were in the middle of tech. The set that Nick, I can't remember who your designer was for that, but... Um, David Fielding. David Fielding. 
David Fielding's set and Nick's set was a huge, giant, sort of hollow cube that circled. Now, I don't, I think, uh, this is my memory. It wasn't working. The cube had juddered to a halt. And um, Nick had a couple of hours to spare. And there's nothing they could do. And I was living in one of those they have lovely little houses opposite the stage or Waterside in mm-hmm. Stratford where the actors are put up. And I was living in one of those. My memory is that you obviously thought, oh, what can I do for a couple of hours? I know, I'll go and see Simon. He knocked on right. my door. It was a sunny day. And he said, let's go off and have lunch. And we went to Chipping Camden. I, I, I do remember that. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> it's much more romantic. No, it was. It was. <laughs> and I tell you why it was romantic. Because he didn't cast me for another 10 when? years. <laughs> so this was... This so, was going to be my follow-up question. Well, no, but I, and I, I genuinely think it's romantic. We became sort of friends who'd see each other occasionally. We'd go to the theatre. We didn't. We'd go to the ballet. We'd go to the opera. But we never ever talked about work ever, did we? No. And then Nick took over the National, and flatteringly, one of the first things he did was phone me up and said, "Would you like to come and do a play?" So it was it was t- ten years. Yeah, so is that ten right? years because I thought was. Am I wrong about this as well? That the Alchemist was the first. First thing we did. The first yeah. thing we did, director, actor. Yeah, you did. You were at the National. By the, I did Jumpers was the first thing I yeah. did. Oh, I see. Yes, yes. Yeah. So cast you in a show that you weren't yeah. Yeah. So Nick asked me to come and join the National. Jumpers uh, was the first show I did yes. under your regime. That's right, yeah. And then the first show I did with you was The Alchemist. That's right. Yeah. But, but not knowing each other, it felt perfectly legitimate to knock on the broadside door and say, hello, I'm... Oh, no, I think, I think we'd probably met. We'd met. We'd met, we'd met in the pub and so on, yeah. I don't think we'd spent time together. No. By my reckoning, it was 16 years from that first meeting before you did a play together as director and actor. Is that right? 2006. Yeah. 2006 was Alchemist. Yeah. Yeah. So I suppose it, it does beg the question of why, where did it take us? Given you had that lovely lunch in Chipping Camden. Well, it, it, it's, that's a question, really, about how plays come together who instigates them i was a freelance director i became shortly after that king lear an associate director at the national under richard Eyre. i'm trying to think how much of what i did under richard Eyre i did at my suggestion some of it i did at his suggestion some of it i specifically offered to satisfy the needs of the national theater which i think looking back on it was the beginnings of a glimmering of uh, an awareness of what it would take to run the National Theatre and why in the end I decided I'd throw my hat into the ring. So uh, between 1990 and 2003, when I became the, the director of the National, what I was doing was very much uh, not as dependent as an actor is on producers and artistic directors, but, simply, but, sim- but very much dependent on what I thought would go with them and what they offered me to do. It was only since 2003, writers, actors, other directors who have some reason to think that I might be soliciting them for their services have had reason to be miffed if I haven't. But it cuts both ways. I promise you, when I was artistic director of the National, a lot of the job is persuading, seducing mm. actors, directors, writers into working on things that I, as the director of the National, similarly now at the bridge, might want them to do. So Has he ever had to persuade or seduce you? No. So, well, no, I you don't. have said no. You, you've said, no, I don't think I want to play that part. I mean, ah, uh, oh, like, that, yeah. I mean, there, there to moments. both our benefits, actually. I remember it's when... Therapy, but it's <laughs> <physical>. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's actually very interesting to me because I can't remember what I was doing in that 10 years, particularly. I mean, I was freelance like Nick. And of course, Nick, you did this at the time with Carousel and I did Carousel, Miss Saigon. Yeah. I mean, the shows for which I was obviously not. How dare you? Appropriate. Occasionally, we discuss, I mean, now we know each other so much better and have done quite a lot. We do occasionally go, what about? And I'll go, uh, funny enough, Midsummer Night's Dream. Huh. Nick said to me, would you be interested in doing Midsummer Night's Dream? This while I was Dream? at the National. Wow. National. Yeah. Uh, Olympic year. Bottom. Uh, bottom. Well, I presume bottom. I, mean, I suppose yeah, it could bottom. have been Obron, but I, <laughs> no, it was I, I, um, I don't really know. I mean, uh, no, I remember bottom. my reaction was obviously... <laughs> I think, to be fair... I offered it in that spirit, mm. which you probably, even if you weren't conscious out, of it, yeah. sniffed out. Because, because we, you know, th- there we were on the South Bank. It was obviously necessary to mark the cultural Olympiad somehow. And, oh, gosh, what are we going to do? It'll have to be Shakespeare World, you know, maybe. And I think yes, it was, it was probably a bit And in the end, in the end. I know, we, and I, well, yeah. I'll tell this story because you were on a plane. Mm. And you phoned me up, I think, from the cabin before you had to switch your phone off. Mm. And said, have you ever read Time in of Athens? And I went, oh, my God, I read it many years ago. Well, what do you think? Do you think it's worth doing? And I said, that's a very exciting idea. Are you offering me time? And, <laughs> and, and, Nick, and Nick went, well, of course I am. Twit. <laughs> so, and then switched his phone off and then flew to New York. But that's how timing came out, wasn't it? Yeah. And it was the most odd choice for Olympic year. It, it, it is a reductive idea of relationships, but, but maybe there's a little bit of truth in it. That in relationships, and by the way, you sped up from 2016. You then did eight shows together to the present day. This really is, because I didn't even know that. Years. <laughs> eight shows in 16 years. You didn't. Actually, going. I am going to say it was a terrible offer again, but... Manus of George III at the first workshop. Oh yes, you played. You Fox. played. It's an excellent but very small part. Oh. So you were right not. I'm <laughs> telling Alan Bennett that I thought it was underwritten. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, I think. But, I can't but you, you know, your, your your relationship got hot and heavy for the next sixteen years. Eight shows in sixteen years. Yeah, when that's you not are bad, is it? And, and a huge, huge range. I mean, the interesting can the other person, your old friend, and my old friend. Sam Mendes, who I do, who's the other person I have a very close relationship with. You're in with, a thruple with, yes. with, a with. Um, All my work with Sam, except for Lehman Trilogy, has been Shakespeare, Chekhov. With Nick, it's a much greater range. Yes. We've done a couple of new Two plays. New plays. Yeah. We've done Johnson, we've done uh, Ibsen, we've yeah. done, you know, so we've, we've, we've done Shakespeare. Right. So, Dickens. you know. No, you've covered the Dickens. Waterfront. Yeah. Um, and you made up for lost time and you've been, you know, very involved with each other professionally in the last ever since 2006 I mean, mm-hmm. by anyone's estimation of playing together every two years is yeah regular. yeah so i suppose my question is this the back to the reductive question is it any is there any truth in this idea that the, in relationships there is a lover and a beloved a pursuer <laughs> a pursuer and a pursuer and in which case do you think there's a lover and a beloved I'm always the lover. Sure. Both all my directors are black. Actually, I'm almost serious about that. Because the one thing I always think the, direct, the most important thing a director can do is to look as if he or she thinks you are the most fascinating thing to watch. <laughs> I mean, I, I, and I don't mean that flippantly. I mean, I think if well, you're... So on, you're the beloved. The, I suppose I'm the beloved. Yes. Mm, but if you... If that's you right. 
if you are if you're on a rehearsal room floor, it's why I always hated the idea of having the uh, public rehearsals, because it is a vulnerable. I mean, I don't want to be pretentious about it, but it is a vulnerable thing, and you do have to try stupid things, and you do have to fail, and all that sort of stuff. And if the director is there looking at you, and you think, I know that I fascinate, or her, <laughs> then, then, or I believe I fascinate <laughs> for the moment him or her, then I think. Yes. You know, a lot of the work is done. Yes. God. Are you always good at uh, expressing fascination? Or is there every time, <laughs> every time with someone who's wanted more fascination from you? No, I think, I think in rehearsal I genuinely am. My default is fascination with what the actor's doing because there comes a point where it's really hard and I think ultimately futile to describe and analyse what an actor's doing. All actors come at it differently. There is something instinctive and mysterious about the way actors digest what somebody else has written and turn what somebody else has written into something flesh and blood. I've never been a great teacher of acting to the extent that I do not have a method. I often think that there is something lacking in me that I have never, I wouldn't even be able to give you my top 10 tips. And some of my colleagues are brilliant teachers. And some of my colleagues are brilliant teachers of directors. Again, I sometimes think I should just sit down and force myself to be more analytical about what it is that I think that I do. And I've always avoided doing it. It's not like I'm shy of sitting down and writing stuff, but I've never written that. There are bits of the book I wrote about being at the National Mm. which get close to that. It's about a paragraph that tells you how to do Shakespeare. And it basically says... It's not that hard. Um, uh, but, but which, of course, is, is a gross simplification and probably a misrepresentation of what I believe. So, yeah, my default is I watch in fascination. And the flip side of that is I know from, I know from actors who I am fascinated by that... When I'm not fascinated with oh, yes. impatient, I knew you were going to say this. They yes. always, they always well, know, and it's yeah, not really, conscious. It's not. It can show. switch. It can switch off like that. Really? Yes. What, what, how does it express itself? His, his, so eyes, he he, his, his eyes. His eyes go dead. Eyes go dead. Dead. Uh, Sam. <laughs> so Sam does that. Taps his leg. All, all directors have a little thing when you go, oh, that you know well. Um, and Nick and, the, and Sam are the two I know best. And it's usually actually, if I'm to be honest, I think it's because he's thinking about something else. I mean, I don't think he's thinking about it. I, I genuinely think that it's probably, it's not something else. It's, is there something I can do to yeah. unlock it? Yeah. yeah. See, what so, I find fascinating about directors, and it's why I could never be one, is that that particular process, and when you say you have no method, what I find fascinating about directors is when they give you something and the more familiar with the director you are the, the easier it is but when they give you something and you know the steps that they're requiring you to make I remember Terry Hans, a great director saying to me once when I was very when I first started out and and I was quite good at taking notes and he's and he came up to me once and says you know something I don't when I give you a note I don't actually want you to do it do it what I'm trying to do is to get you to respond to something you're a good boy you know you're a good school boy and you you'll do absolutely what the master says, and that's not quite what I'm, I'm asking for. I'm asking for you to respond. And what the great directors do is that thing of being able to say, I wonder whether I can say something behind the, the eyes which will get a response mm-hmm. three steps down the line mm. that is sort of will be exciting. Yes, exactly. And I, I find that Seasoning. really fascinating. And I've watched directors give notes to people 
and seen that sort of thing where they've transformed a note, which was obviously that's rubbish in, you no. know, to something, something molding, something prodding. You know. yeah. and there's, also, there's also sometimes it's not rubbish, but trying to find some way of you doing something which will unlock her. Mm. Yes, know, which is a, which is, and I'd, I'd say, unlocking actors and unlocking scenes and getting actors to unlock other actors is a big part of the job. Mm. Something I've learned, which I've, I've only recently realized, is that over the years I have learned to say much less. I'm, I'm quite chatty. And when Simon's in the room, we're both abysmally chatty. And you can, you can, you can, then you can see everybody else's eyes going. Here they go. But if something's going well, if someone is onto something, I now think, I now realize, that what you don't want to do is make them different actors. Different actors require different relationships, but making an actor analyze, pick apart what they're instinctively doing well, I think can be quite counterproductive. And sometimes they get there without you, or sometimes you find something right at the beginning, which means that it just works. And then it's, you're taking too long over that. You're you're um, you're indulging yourselves. Just easy notes that almost anybody can give. At the national, I got, got an opportunity to see other directors working, which most directors never do. And I think the best ones are pretty, are pretty economical. You talked about when you both get going. It's sometimes a little tricky for the rest of the company in the yeah. rehearsal room. You're just standing listening because you're both ex- super bright you both studied english at the same university Mm -hmm. you know you are magnificently both given to a cerebral approach to these great plays as well as all the other ingredients but i want to know i was curious about those other ingredients and you use the word mystery nick how much of your collaboration needs to retain some of that mystery is it always important for you to to understand every corner of the play I call it the uncertainty principle. I think there are moments, especially in a long run of a play, when you get to know a play extremely well, it will, literally you could do anything. Mm. Uh, you, know, you could stand on your head naked and you'd still be Hamlet. It, does, it really doesn't. It's, it's sort of so in you, although it's not steady, that you can actually do completely opposite, opposite things. Mm. The older I get, the more... I mean, I think with um, the time, and I do completely different sort of readings and whatever and then finally of course you end up with multiple readings many of which are contradictory and then you end up with doing all of them at the same time because you can't really settle I call it an uncertainty principle because it's like having two electrons in two different places and and, and when you do things like Chekhov oh, I did uh, Thesites and Troyes and Cresta and I remember I had to sort of scream at the end uh, as, as Achilles disgracefully kills Hector and it could be a scream of triumph, it could be a scream of pain, or it could be both at the same time. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. You could, and that if you just leave it, leave it in the air, then it's up to you mm. to decide what you think I'm feeling. Presumably, as, as the direct, director of the play, you, ident- you, know, you know what a mystery is worth not unpacking. Yeah, I think, again, it's something that I've learned to embrace a lot more. Mm my default position would be to analyze everything, to understand how everything works, to be utterly rational about it. But plays being about people, by their nature, 
uh, deal with the irrational. The, um, the second to last play we did, John Gabriel Bookman, uh, varied colossally from night to night yeah. because you had at the centre of it three actors who grew to trust each other. Uh, overused word, I know, but it, we, we did. And anything, anything that any of them did yeah. would be accepted with, within reaction. the parameters that Nick had we had set down early on, but it, yeah. it never felt like... I mean, they were directly contradictory. Do you think that um, might have been different earlier on in your career? You might have yeah. wanted to understand what I would, I would, and I, I would, and I, and I think I probably drove people mad. Uh, designers, playwrights, and actors, by needing always to know exactly what was going on. I think the last thing an actor needs is to be backed into a corner and particularly, there's some actors who work totally on instinct. That's why I say they glaze over when we're together in the rehearsal room. Because, yeah, we both have English degrees, so we talk about texts in a particular way. How intimidating that must be to great actors, young actors maybe, who haven't, who haven't yet yearned to learn to gab the way we do, if they start thinking this is the only way we can act in this room. So you have to give space to, to people who act as if they're dancing, as if they're singing, as if they're playing music. You have to do that. You also, you have, to, you have to fight if you're the, you, as you gradually realize I'm the oldest person in the room, you have to fight the tendency to give patriarchal instructions from on high. I mean, if, if you're the oldest male in the room, that's, that is, that, yeah. I mean, it is, it's, it's what's gonna happen, alas. So you have to Mind fight you, that. we need it. I wanna test something out because it's just something I've been thinking about recently is this business of change. One of the things that Shakespeare seems to me to insist on is that people can change. And one of the things that he's, his plays seem, when they are at their most miserable, to lament is that some people can't. Mm. I mean, I don't believe Lear changes. I don't believe, we, we've, we've talked about this and that's again another whole session. I think that's why we go to art. I think that's why we go to fiction. And it's certainly why we go to the theater and watch movies. Because I think the main terror that we start to confront as we get older is that we're now fixed. We can't change anymore. I think all of us have this fantasy. We live, not, not fantasy, we live with the ambition to change. To change, obviously, you know, we learn that there are things we can't change. We can't change how other people are. We can't always change our exterior circumstances. But the one thing that we have power over is ourselves. And we need to be reassured all, all the time that we can, when we choose, change ourselves. And the existential horror is, I can't change anymore. I'm stuck, I'm fixed. The plays I really don't like, even though I recognize their greatness, are the ones that say that, waiting for Godot a play whose greatness I absolutely recognize, but I really hate sitting through it because those, those tramps, however funny they are, and I think they're not, um, <laughs> the point is they don't change. Shakespeare, one of the many reasons why Shakespeare is preeminent is he is the great dramatist of change, I think, the, of, of actors like to call it going on a journey the paradigmatic, although it's mysterious, change part is Hamlet. He seems to be, and one of the reasons why everybody is obsessed by it, particularly men, is he seems to be a different person at the beginning to what he is at the end. And I think that's why we keep coming back to Shakespeare. And we even create 
I suspect false mythologies around parts, plays, which Lear in particular, who um, we need to think that by the end of the play, Lear <clears throat> has seen the error of his ways, come to terms with who he is, reconciled with Cordelia. But in fact, if you look at it, he's insisting on Cordelia being exactly the same person at the end of the play as he um, insists on Michael Billington said about Chekhov, didn't he? He had this, th- this theory about Chekhov, which was that the people, for instance, in The Seagull or Uncle Vanya, the people who have the potential to change are the ones that are destroyed. That's tragedy. That's tragedy. So the ones that, that are um, set in stone are, are the ones that survive. And the ones that could change, like Constantine and Nina, are the ones that are destroyed. I think it's a wonderful perception. And, and, and I think that's a great thing to watch because it, that's the most wrenching thing. The thing about Lear is that um, I agree with you. I don't think he changes. Uh, well, the reason why I think it's the greatest play ever written is because it is so profoundly depressing about the, about the inability to change. And Shakespeare does this all the time. He gives you the most beautiful speech, a bit like Our Revels Now Are Ended. And then you think, hang on a minute, hang on a minute, hang on a minute. Our Revels Now Are Ended. Prospero is talking to his son-in-law who's about to marry his daughter and telling the world shit. It's, 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 not, a good, it's not a good father-in-law speech. It really isn't. <laughs> Lear has that marvellous speech when he goes, and we two will go to prison and we'll sing like birds in a cage. You're thinking, your daughter's just got married. She can't go to no, exactly. That's, prison I, I with think... you. And, and so he doesn't, he doesn't chain... Yeah. He does, to be fair... He says things in the middle of the play that he realizes things in the middle of the play that he would never have known before Poor he naked got wretches, yeah, yeah before yeah, he got yeah, thrown yeah, out yeah, in the yeah, heat. Yeah, yeah. But he, but yeah. he, because and the, and the other thing that uh, just interesting about the folio, I did a little um, uh, television series and I met this marvelous academic called Sonia Masai who showed me a folio in the British Library, I think, and we were talking about two, the two versions of Lear and they both have different endings. We were looking at his last Lear's last words, which are look there, look there. Always, always, however hard you try and shake it off, always the idea that over the body of his dead daughter, the corpse of his daughter, he's going, look, there's a breath. Look, there's... Perhaps things will check. Perhaps she's alive. Perhaps her spirit's gone up to heaven. Look there, look there. In other words, it has a sort of sentimental positivity about it. I went that night to do the show and I thought, you know something... You could do look there, look there in a completely different way. And this was on the spur of the moment. And so I went to the rest of the people around me. Look there. Look there. In other words, life, life, is, life is the dead body of my daughter lying at my feet. That's what it is. And, and suddenly I thought, you can... Just, I don't know why I mentioned it. It's just that I, I still, it, could, it could mean that. When listen. you catch each other's eye, and I feel a little bit like I'm intruding, <laughs> uh, of course, the, the, the absolute truth of your relationship, you know, which, if I could let's get back to the therapy, you know, obviously, it's a very modern very, relationship. It's an open relationship. You mm-hmm. do see other people, <laughs> you know, other men, other men and women. What's that like? You know, as a as a great classical actor, the great director, you don't get to revisit these plays very often again. And Simon goes off and does 
a great part for somebody else, or when you direct? I mean, do you feel jilted by yeah, I Rory Kinnear I, ever? I, oh, yes. Sure. Well, Rory also did all the parts that I did. Right, 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 right. There was a doubling. In yes, fact, that's funny right. enough, I remember John Wood driving me back from London to Stratford once uh, in one of his rather... He, he loved his smart car. He did, yeah. And he drove me back, and he, I can't remember, they were doing The Tempest and Lear, I think, again. And what must have been Robert Stevens doing Lear? And Anyway, he said they're doing my parts, <laughs> meaning Prospero and Lear. And I said, oh, John, we're so silly. But, yes, of course, when I saw, you know, Rory do Iago, I mean, I, I couldn't have done Iago again, but, you know, of course, there's a bit of you that goes... I mean, I, I really, I don't need to see Hamlet again anyway, really, but I, I you know, there's a little bit, bit of me that goes... Oh. Yeah. Actually, Constantine of the Seagull, that was, that's the big one. I, I, that really is... You've got proprietorial. Mm. I don't sit there and think... And my son gets pissed off when I see something that Nick's directed or any other director, and I think, oh, I should have been in there. So <laughs> I, I, uh, I, <laughs> Do you ever I feel know. proprietorial about your beloved? I don't. And I don't really feel proprietorial about the plays I've done, not even the plays that I have done the first production of. Mm. I very happily saw an excellent production of Anders of George III in Nottingham two or three years ago, which I thought was great. And Simon works with very good directors. <laughs> On the odd occasion, you work with a director I don't consider to be <laughs> up to you. <laughs> we, won't, we, won't, we won't say it. We won't, we won't yeah. say it. But you, you generally do admit later on. That, that was a mistake. Yeah. The, um... <laughs> The, uh, not that I also, ever, not that I would see, ever try to dissuade you. See, it's, always, it's also a continuing relationship, you know. So yes, well, one hopes. Um, but we'll the, the, you know, we'll find out. But the, so I'm not sitting there thinking, oh, we'll never work again. In fact, I'm assuming we will, which um, which might be a presumption. But that, that's no, what no, I'm assuming. So I, you know, I'm, I'm not sitting there going, right, sure. He's gone off with somebody else, <laughs> right. I see the way you're. I, 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 it's very. Powerful. I love this conceit of. Of, but it can be um, inaccurate, I suppose. Right. <laughs> uh, let's fast forward a little bit to your last oh, uh, right. show together. Um, again, am I right about this? Borkman, the last one. And, and Christmas Carol. Well, Christmas, Christmas Carol, Carol. But Christmas Carol was conceived yeah, earlier. We, we, did, right yeah, we, did, we, we did three pretty close to each other, actually, which is Barkinson's, Borkman and Christmas Carol. Christmas Carol yeah. was absolutely a uh, stopgap. What was the challenge of Borkman? It's just a play I'm sort of fascinated by. I saw Paul Schofield and, and Vanessa Redgrave do their famous production at The National. And I adored your show more than I can possibly tell you. Um, what, was the, what was the central challenge of that? I think we both really admired the play and really believed the play. I'd only done one Ibsen. I remember yeah, saying to you... I'd never done Ibsen. I, so. I'd love to do another Ibsen yeah. because... I remember Michael Pennington, and we were t having one of those silly arguments you have when you're 20. Oh, Chekhov's great, perfect. And I remember Michael Pennington said, oh, but Ibsen's greater. I mean, I don't know when, whether I believe that, but I remember that very clearly from when I was in my 20s. And I thought, oh, that's interesting, because I did ghosts. And of course, it doesn't make naturalistic sense, ghosts. If Oswald's got syphilis, everybody's got syphilis. And, um, you know, it's just, you know, it's one of those things you think, no, that's not the point, Simon. The point is that Ibsen's playing a different game. Anyway, so I became rather fascinated by Ibsen as a, as a figure. I'd seen 
I've said this many times, I think the single greatest moment of acting I've ever seen was Paul Schofield doing Borgman. And you scene. suggested it, didn't you? You suggested yeah, Borgman. The final partly, scene? Partly because of that reason. Oh, wow. Well, I thought you wanted to challenge Yes, I mean, I, you know, Vanessa and Eileen did the first, Eileen Atkins did the first act, and then Vanessa and Eileen, and then Paul Schofield did a bit of the second act. And then the third act, I don't know what happened. Something happened to Paul Schofield. Something just happened. He went off into... The fjord. Oh, better than the fjord. Yeah. He went off into... What he does, he leaves the house, where yeah. his confinement into it, it, the Oh, yes, naturally, yes, in, 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 in story terms, yes, yeah. he leaves the house, goes up to the top of the mountain, and he has a speech, which is actually quite tricky to do now, because it's about mining the earth. But Paul, I, I remember Paul doing and thinking, I don't know how you've done that. I literally don't know how you've done that. It, I, I've sort of followed, you know, because you do sort of, subconsciously follow actors, don't you, through their performance? You go, yes, I see what I see, I see. Hopefully not judgmentally, but you. But I don't, don't know how he did it. Anyway, so I, I, we were talking, and I think I probably said, can I do Portman? Because <laughs> I thought I could. I didn't. I uh, really do, did. do what Schofield No, it is. It's, and and actually, it, it's, it's, it's central setup is very, very immediate, which is a disgraced banker who is still blaming everybody else. Yeah. Um, it's melodramatic, which is thought to be a problem, but I'm rather fond of melodrama. And then it has this apparently mystical final act, which it turns out is completely comprehensible if you just do what's written. But yes, definitely it goes, it, it, it aspires goes to go somewhere. Yeah. I'm just going to, remembering something about Paul Schofield, who I did once work with on a movie of The Crucible. He played Danforth. Deputy, is it Deputy Governor? The judge who gets sent to Salem. Terrifying performance. And of course everybody worshipped Schofield, who, you know, all the Brits totally worshipped Schofield. But the thing I remember coming back to relationships between actors and directors, there's nothing you can tell Paul Schofield about acting, nor did I really want to. He was utterly charming. But it became really clear very early on that he simply didn't want to talk about how he acted, or even the part. He wanted to know where the mark was. He wanted faster, slower, quieter, louder. That's all he wanted. That anything else seemed to impinge. He told me that the reason he accepted the part was that it felt like the flip side of Thomas More in Manful Seasons. In other words, both of them, men of total burning conviction. But Danforth the more dangerous and the more warped. So I was totally... Do you cool. think that was confidence on what? his part? He didn't want anybody else interfering with him. He knew what his own processes were. He was completely open to anybody else coming about it exactly the way they wanted to. Daniel Day-Lewis, who played John Proctor, couldn't have come at, at it from a more different place. Paul Schofield, when he, we rehearsed a bit, which is, not, which is not routine in a movie, but Schofield was the one who wanted most rehearsal because it was going to help him. He was, not, he was getting on a bit, learn his lines. Daniel really didn't like rehearsing because Daniel had put such store by spontaneity. Totally, I totally get it. Schofield rehearses musically by pitching the vowels. This is a new tight, new that, new time. Until he finds, and through that, he finds the truth. Daniel, in rehearsal, the deal was, I'm going to do nothing to commit. So Daniel mumbled the lines because by doing too much with them, he would have prevented the spontaneous inspiration on the day in front of the camera. Schofield wanted to lock it all in, note by note. I'm always T 
teaching this, when I do teach, I'm always saying this to directors, the point being, they are absolutely in the same place on the day. So here's an example of two actors coming from totally different places, not just respectful of each other, but admiring of each other to the nth degree. And they come from there, and then they get in front of the camera, they're like that. But the one time I misstepped with Schofield was on the set, on the day, there was a scene, it was a speech he gave to Giles Corey, the guy who in the end, you know, as a stoke, more weight, more weight, dies under the weight of the rocks. I can't even remember what the issue was, but I thought it should be, I thought there should be a glint of humor, a glint of vicious humor in it. I started going around the houses, saying what I thought, why I thought, and he, uh, he listened to me patiently, and then he said, when I finished, he said, do you mean more comedy? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that'll do. That's exactly what I mean, Paul. And that's, but, but that's, that's as great an actor as there was. Yeah, yeah. And all he wanted was fast, slow, funny. Yeah. That's all he wanted. You were pretty great in that part too, oh, mate. You, you went somewhere extraordinary. Yeah. Now we're going to wrap this up very, very soon. We promise. Do you ever row back to the therapy? I don't think we do, do we? No, I don't think we have. Yeah. We, Simon, you're you a choral scholar at St. Paul's. You're singing your musical no, knowledge. No, I mean, no. a great director of musicals here. Who wouldn't want to see Nick direct Simon as Sweeney Todd? I'm just putting it out there. <laughs> just throwing it out there. Funnily enough, Stephen Sondheim, who I knew very slightly, he, of course, used to talk about funny things happened on the way to the forum, and I'm not quite sure we could do that, man. I think... <laughs> Comic tastes have probably moved, <laughs> probably moved on, you know. Um, but it, it's it's a funny piece with some really good numbers. Sweeney Todd's a great piece. I don't think it needs my attentions, actually. It's a, it's a great you've, piece. You've talked I've about wanting to play Cleopatra. Oh, God, yeah. Is that... No, I'm too fat. I'm too fat now. When I was younger, I could have played Cleopatra. <laughs> I think on that magnificent <laughs> note of evocation... In all our brains, it's time to say thank you so much to Nicholas Heitner, Simon Russell Beale, and thank you all. Thank you to yes, Stella Powell Jones you. for hosting us tonight at Jones Street <coughs> Theatre. Thank you all for coming. It's been glorious to hear you. Really, talk. really loved it. Thank okay. you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. All right. 
There they go, two great theatrical knights wandering off, out of the theatre, arm in arm, talking about their next collaboration. What a joy to talk to those two about the nine plays and the life they've led together. Oh my goodness, if you enjoyed that half as much as I did, I'm, then I enjoyed it twice as much as you. No, it was just fabulous, wasn't it? I thought they were so terrifically interesting together. Um, that current that passes between them is real, and it must be so electric in the rehearsal room. I thought there was some really fascinating stuff they talked about. <laughs> the royal etiquette that the madness of George III is a model for the royal household, despite the fact that they made it up, which only confirms that everyone is acting. All the world's a stage, even the royal family, especially the royal family. Everyone is basically just putting on some theatre. I thought that was so moving about which one is the lover and which is the beloved and how Simon insists on being the love object. <laughs> which I suppose, if every actor were to admit it, uh, is probably how we all feel. I thought it was fabulous about the tells when actors uh, understand that directors' minds have gone elsewhere. And of course, directors are simply trying to figure out how to make the damn thing work. Just so painstaking and difficult, the business of trying to make this piece of music sound right. Oh, it's just fascinating. And everything that Nick had to say about change, I thought, was really beautiful. And how how we need to understand that change is possible through theatre because we fear not changing ourselves and those characters that do change and therefore risk harm to themselves and those characters that don't change and therefore probably endure, though they're slightly terrifying. And again, how, how much we share the understanding of that as an audience when you see it being played out on stage, one of the great ways in which theatre reflects our humanity. I just thought that was beautiful, beautifully put. Oh, what an enjoyable thing to do a live show. And I'll be doing more of them when the podcast returns. Sometime, I don't know, in the late autumn, fall, early winter, probably, before the end of this year, maybe, I expect. And I've got some spectacular theatre artists to talk to, so I really hope you'll join me. Oh, would you mind doing me one quick favour? I hope it'll be quick. Could you bear to rate, review and subscribe? to this podcast. The reason is that I think it counts quite a lot. In the cutthroat world of podcastery, I think it means a lot. So it would mean an awful lot to me if you if you could be bothered to do that. Thank you so much. And thank you for thank you for listening. Thank you. I hope you really have enjoyed it as much as I have. I've I've just loved Every conversation I've had this, this season has been so varied and so interesting to me, and I can't wait to do more and more live shows. Watch out for news of those. Stage Door Johnny is an off-script production. Louise Berry, thank you so much for exact producing. Acast, thank you so much for your support. Ben Backhouse, you're a brilliant producer. Thank you for all you do. The musicians, the maestro of melody, Ignatius Cake, thank you so much. Phoebe, for singing so beautifully. Thank you to the stage manager. And please go see a play. It's, it's one of the foundational experiences of us as a species. It's one of the ways in which we get to understand ourselves, share our humanity, and when it's good. When it's good. 
Stage door, John.